Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are right now in the wonderful Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. There's no real easy way to break to you the topic today. Is everybody prepared? At least you're seated. It is the topic of divorce and remarriage. The reason that is the topic for today's sermon is because I was reading a a church growth strategy book, and they said in the fall, when there's visitors, go for the divorce sermon. Uh, That'll really draw them in. No, that's not why. why. I don't read uh, church growth strategy books. But uh, the reason we are here is because this is where we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is the next paragraph, and this is the the next thing Jesus has to say. And so, uh, we don't want to pick and choose with the Bible. We want to take the Bible as it is. And so, there's no way to dodge this topic, nor do we really want to dodge the topic. I want to know what what Christ and what God's Word teaches on the topic of divorce. Before I get into anything here, let me just say at at the front that I am standing on a lot of people's shoulders in this sermon. I am borrowing heavily in my outline from Kevin DeYoung. I have learned a lot from a lot of other sources, and I will probably mention this, but just just to show you, this is free online in 1992. The uh, General Assembly of the PCA, not the PCUSA, but the PCA, the more conservative branch of the Presbyterian denomination, they put out a wonderful position paper on divorce and remarriage. It's about 113 pages long or so. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal treatment of the subject, and so I've benefited a whole lot from, from, that, from that treatment and a number of other theologians uh, that I've been reading and listening to as well. So almost nothing I'm going to say today is original with me. I'm not sure you want me to be making original comments either on this topic, but this is all coming from people who've gone before us who I hope can be a guide to help us better understand what Jesus is teaching and what all of Scripture is teaching. Let me read our text for us, Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read last week's text along with this week, so Matthew 5, 27 through 32. And this is the Word of the Lord, Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this passage affects many of us in different ways. This is obviously one of the most touchy of all issues. And there is much confusion as to what exactly Scripture teaches on this issue. I I hope and pray that this sermon will bring some clarity, not more confusion. And God, in the limited time we have, help us to pack in as much as we can and to understand as much as we can about what Your Word says. And I pray You'd be honored in these minutes, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, just like the last two weeks, if you were here, the topic was lust, and really there were two sermons that overlapped, right? There was a lot of overlap, but they weren't identical sermons. So this week and next week, I plan to speak on, a, on divorce and remarriage both Sundays, but they're not going to come at it from precisely the same angles. And I hope if there are questions left unanswered, and I guarantee you there will be questions left unanswered at the end today, I hope I'll at least address some of them more thoroughly next Sunday on this issue. I don't think it's an accident that you've got the lust topic with, with internal adultery in the preceding text, then you've got the issue of divorce and remarriage, and then what's the very next paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount? It's about being true to your word, oath-taking and let your yes be yes and your no be no, and clearly marriage involves uh, the most important of vows to be faithful to one another until death do us part. So the message today… Uh, that uh, I'll be walking through. Again, getting a lot of help from Kevin DeYoung. I have eight points. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through all of these like I want to, but I'll try. And just again, as a warning, there's a lot of material to cover. It's pretty dense. I don't know how else to say it, but I think it is of utmost importance that we understand this. Whether we are single, whether we are married, whether we ourselves have gone through divorce, whether we are remarried after a divorce, wherever we are at in life or we know people in those situations, uh, we, we need to hear what God has to say on this issue. So these eight points will guide us as we walk through it, and we'll begin with point number one. Marriage is intended by God to be a lifelong commitment. These first couple points are going to be pretty obvious and straightforward. Marriage is intended by God to be a lifelong commitment. Turn with me to Matthew 19, a few chapters later on in the Gospel of Matthew, and Lord willing, we'll come back later and hear more about this when we get to chapter 19. Let's go ahead and jump ahead. Matthew 19, that's an extended teaching on divorce from Jesus here. It's, I think, the clearest teaching Jesus gives us uh, right here in, in Matthew 19, along with Mark 10. And look at Matthew 19, and we'll read verses 3 through 6. Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, do you see here what Jesus is doing to the question? The question is, Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? What we today call no-fault no fault divorce is almost they're calling it any-fault divorce, just for any reason. Is there any reason that a, that a husband can divorce his wife? And Jesus does not just say yes or no. What does he do? He says, you're starting in the whole wrong point on this conversation about marriage. You're asking this question that you're framing the whole conversation wrongly. So let me reframe the conversation. You're starting in Deuteronomy with a, with a divorce law. Let's go back to Genesis and let me reframe the whole conversation. God made one man, Adam. He made one woman, Eve. He made them to be lifelong partners in the covenant faithfulness of marriage, and they are to become one flesh in that context. That is what God intended. And when God made the two one... He doesn't want man to be ripping apart what God has brought together. 
I haven't done that many weddings, but whenever I do a wedding, at the very end, I say, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's how I end every single wedding ceremony. And Jesus is saying, let's start at the right place. Marriage is a wonderful thing that God has given us, as we've discussed in previous weeks, and it is not intended by God to be broken. It is intended by God to be upheld until death do us part. To, just to give an illustration of this reframing, I'm at, you know, I'm at, I'm at a school where I teach seniors, and freshman, or excuse me, spring semester, seniors don't have to take an exam. And so, imagine a student coming up to me, and they're, they're you know, they're starting to struggle in Bible class, and they got, they got a C in Bible class, and that's not great. And they got their C going on early in the spring semester, and the senior comes up and says, well, isn't it true that I don't have to take a Bible exam if I'm making a C in your class? I would say, that's the wrong question. It's kind of one of those, what's minimally required questions? If it's true that I make a C, I mean, C's get degrees, right? If I'm making a C and I, I don't have to take your final, there's no final exam in the spring, I would want to say, let's reframe the question. Let's reframe how we're asking this. I hope you would say, instead, we have the privilege of studying God's Word in a classroom setting. What is the most I can do to expand my mind and my heart to better understand, love, and enjoy God's Word and to benefit from this class as much as I possibly can while I'm here? And by the way, if I don't make an A, can I still not have to take an exam? That'd be the right way to frame the question. See, that's the kind of thing Jesus is dealing with. Can we divorce for any reason? And Jesus says, let's start back at the very beginning. What is marriage for? Marriage is intended by God to be a lifelong commitment between a husband and wife. Point number two, remarriage is, this is very obvious, remarriage is permitted but not required after the death of a spouse. Now you say, well, duh, obviously that's true. Well, I'm mentioning this because, first of all, I don't want there to be confusion about this. In the early church, there was confusion about this. That may sound strange, but before the Council of Nicaea in 325, they called them the, the, you know, the, the pre-Nicene fathers, a lot of them held that divorce does not end a marriage. And that if you remarry after the death of a spouse, you're committing adultery on your deceased spouse. I don't know where they got that from. That's clearly not biblical, but that, that is, uh, that's what, for instance, uh, Tertullian uh, believed around the year 200. Very easy to respond to this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7, to your right. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Romans chapter 7. Verse 1, and Paul's not really trying to teach on marriage here. I would not go to Romans 7, 1 through 3 to get all that you need to know about marriage. He's using it as a metaphor to describe something else. But still, we learn an important point. Romans 7, verse 1, or do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, you can turn back to Matthew, but I'll read another verse while you are turning. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says this, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married. And I love this statement. It just gives a lot of freedom and guidance on who you should marry, whether you're widowed or whether you're single. She is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. 
So there is great freedom within Christ. With the, for, the, for those who are fellow believers, there is great freedom of whom to marry. We should use wisdom. We should not go into marriage blindly, but you are free to marry whom you wish, but this person must be in the Lord. They must be a believer in the Lord. I hope those points are pretty obvious. Let's start to get into some of the more difficult territory. Point number three, all divorce happens because of sin, but not all divorce is sinful. All divorce happens because of sin, but not all divorce is sinful. Now, the reason I say both of those things is because this. In an ideal world, if everyone was sinlessly perfect, would there ever be such thing as divorce? No. So even when divorce is biblically justified, which it is in certain instances that we will talk about, even when divorce is justified, there has been serious sin somewhere in that marriage that has preceded it, that has allowed that divorce to be biblically justified. So all divorce happens because of sin, but not all divorce is sinful. And I, I want to make this very clear. In today's world, many divorces, if not perhaps the, the good majority of divorces, are not biblically justified. We live in a no-fault divorce culture, and what has that done to families, to children, to just our culture in general? What, what are, we'll talk more about that next week, Lord willing. But I want to walk through now 12, un, and you don't, have to, you don't have to write these down, 12 unbiblical reasons for divorce. And some of these I'm borrowing from Tim Challey's wonderful blog. Some of these I made up on my own, but 12 unbiblical reasons for divorce. Just sit back and listen to these and, and examine your own heart as you think about these. Number one, I got married too young. I mean, I know a woman who said this. Uh, she, sought, she sought a divorce after more than 20 years of marriage to her husband. She was a church member in the city of Athens. I knew her and her family and her kids. And she said, I got married, I think she was 19. I got married at 19 and I started having my kids right away. And by the time I was 23, I had three or four kids. I never got to live the college years. I didn't get to have that early 20 freedom that, that everybody enjoys. And so I got married too young and I'm out of here. And she left her husband. There was no biblical ground for that divorce. These are unbiblical reasons to divorce. Number two, I don't feel love for my spouse anymore. I know a man who unbiblically divorced his wife a number of years ago, and the reason he said, one of the reasons he said was, I never truly loved my wife. Been married to her for, what, 27 years, whatever it was, almost three decades. I never truly loved my wife, but I just kind of went through the motions, and now I'm starting to feel this tug toward another individual. I don't feel love for my spouse anymore is not a valid grounds for divorce. Number three, my spouse does not show enough affection towards me. You can hear this when someone starts saying, you know, I deserve to be treated a whole lot better than I'm being treated. He never surprises me or does these thoughtful things for me. Now, now listen, I want to say really clearly, husbands should surprise their wives. They should do thoughtful and romantic things for their wives. And if a husband is neglectful in that way, then that's not good. But listen, the flaws and even some of these sins of spouses, many of these things do not validate divorce, okay? It is one thing for a spouse to sin, a man to sin against his wife or a wife to sin against her husband, but those are not automatically just grounds for divorce. Sin is going to happen in every marriage, but not every marriage has grounds for just divorce, for biblical divorce. Number four, unbiblical reason, my spouse works too much. He's always on the job. He doesn't spend enough time with me or my kids. Number five, I'm not happy in this marriage. You've probably heard this. God loves me, 
And God does not want me to be miserable and unhappy for the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life stuck in this awful marriage. I just don't enjoy this at all. I I don't feel anything for my spouse. They don't seem to feel anything for me. I I, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. I'm not happy. God wants me to be happy. Therefore, I know that God wants me out of this marriage. That does not work. Number six, this comes from Vodi Bauckham. My spouse is not the one. And then Vodi said, the one, 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 one with the echo. Oh. <laughs> so he says, listen, you, you may feel, okay, when I first married this person, I thought that he or she was the one. I was so infatuated with this person. And then we got married and years went by and suddenly I was becoming more bored with this person. And then there's this other person I feel really excited about. I feel really caught up with emotionally, which first of all, you should not be that way at all. But he says, listen, I feel like this other person's the one, not the one I married. And Vodi held up his wedding ring and said, I'll tell you who the one is. It's the one you married. Whoever you said, till death do us part to, that's your one. That is your one. And no matter what comes, whether positive or seemingly negative circumstances come our way, we are committed to each other until the end. I mean, there, there are amazing stories of like a seminary. I think it was a president or somebody high up in a seminary. And soon after the marriage, the wife was permanently uh, physically impaired. She was unable to get around like, like, a, like she had normally. This is right after their marriage. And so what did he do? He stepped down from his position, ends up spending a whole lot more time at home, working from home. So what? He can care for his wife. He could have said, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know this was going to happen. If I would have known this ahead of time, I may never have even entered this marriage. This is hard. But he didn't. He loved his wife the way Christ has loved his bride. Number seven, my husband uh, is not a good spiritual leader. Or you could say my wife is not as spiritual as I would like her to be. Along with that, number eight, my spouse is not even a Christian. Surely I could divorce my spouse if my spouse is not a Christian. Well, go read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 about a wife being faithful to an unbelieving husband and how she wins him without a word by the beauty of her conduct and her humility and her service of her husband. Even if you are married to an unbeliever, you do not automatically have just grounds for divorce. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 says, do not initiate a divorce with an unbeliever just because they're an unbeliever. Number nine, reasons not to get divorced. Our marriage is extremely difficult, and after all these years, I am running out of emotional resources to continue to love this person. I'm just, I've done it for how many years? I'm running out of emotional reserves to continue to love this person. And, and, and I, I want to say this humbly. If you know Jesus, you have not run out of reserves. If the reserves are, I'm going to love them to the degree that they're loving me, you will run out of reserves and your marriage will crash and burn inevitably because the day is going to come where your spouse doesn't love you like you want and then you start retaliating by not loving them the way that they want and suddenly what happens? Your downward spiral before you crash into the ground. But no, our love for our spouse is not grounded in our spouse. It's grounded in Christ, our true spouse. When we understand that we have infinite reserves and infinite resources in the cross, it doesn't matter how difficult or painful it is, we can always get a fresh supply of His grace to better love and forgive and move forward in difficult situations. Number 10. How about this one? I've heard this kind of stuff. I talked with my friends, they think I should get out. No biblical reason is given, just I talked with my friends and they recommended that I get out of this marriage. Are they giving you biblical counsel is what I want to ask. Number 11, you heard this? Well, I prayed about it, I read my Bible, and God gave me a peace that leaving this marriage is the right thing to do. 
okay, there's not really biblical grounds, but I have a peace about it, and the kids will be fine. It's going to be fine. Uh, the Lord has told me in my heart that this is the right thing to do. Beware of that reason. Number 12, the last reason. I've actually heard this one as well. I mean, I know the person who said this. Even if it's wrong to get this divorce, God is gracious. He will forgive me for this one sin. That's an actual statement from a person I know who got divorced without biblical grounds. This is the one big sin I'm going to commit. God's going to forgive me afterwards. God is gracious. And I want to say, you have fundamentally adulterated and prostituted the word grace in that moment. As soon as you make grace a license for future sin, you are not talking about grace. You're talking about the the adulterization of God's gift of grace. What instead you should say is, God is so gracious, He will enable me to stay faithful to my spouse, not that He'll forgive me for this one sin. Now, I will talk in a moment about those who have failed, and there, is, there, there, is, there are past decisions that can't be undone. How does the gospel factor into that? And I will, I will address that. But don't ever use grace as an excuse or justification for a future act of sin. Remember, is it Jude the first few verses, they turned the grace of God into license, into lasciviousness, into justification for sin. Now, I plan to spend a lot more time on, on this next subpoint next week, but there is something called the permanence view of marriage. And two men I greatly respect and love hold this view, but it's not me. In fact, the majority of conservative scholars reject this view. But I'll tell you the two people, and I love these two people, John Piper and Vody Bauckham have the permanence view of marriage. They're some of the only people you'll find out there who hold this view. It's a very minority position. But Bodhi and John Piper, I disagree with on this, on this point, but they hold that there is never a just grounds for divorce, no matter what your spouse does, and there is never just grounds for remarriage after divorce while your spouse is still living. vodi has got a whole hour-long sermon on this, and Piper's got a position paper he wrote in 1989 that I've read a couple of times. You can go look it up on his website. He has a long argument for why he takes that view. I have read it. I've thought through it carefully. I do not think it is convincing, and I think every single elder at his church disagrees with him on this. He's got like 40 elders. They all… I think every single one of them, I think, disagrees with him. I even have a paper from one of his elders it's really long disagreeing with his pastor on that one, okay? And it's a great article, written very respectfully, but uh, I don't think it's true. The Catholic Church also holds this view, and some of the early church fathers, I believe, held a similar view. Let me just give you a quick reason why this view is held. Don't have to turn there. Let me read a verse in Luke 16, verse 18. Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and, who, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There's no except for sexual immorality in that verse, and neither is there in Mark 10, uh, verse 11 and 12. And so they say, we think the verses with no exception are the, are, are the ones we should go by, and that when Jesus says except for sexual morality, He's not talking about sexual immorality within marriage. Matthew is talking about an isolated situation. Matthew, the exception clause is only referring to the engagement period. And they appealed to Matthew 1 where Joseph, while they were engaged, had in mind as a just man to divorce Mary quietly, thinking that she had slept with another man. That's how she was pregnant with baby Jesus. He didn't know yet the truth. And so he assumed she had committed sexual morality, so he was going to divorce her while they were still engaged. And Piper and Vody think that the exception clause is only referring to engagement. Now, next week, I want to to really come at that one stronger and and try to give reasons why. I'll give a very brief counter-argument to that now. The simplest way to harmonize 
Mark and Luke and Matthew. They don't have an exception for sexual immorality. Matthew does. Though, how do you harmonize the, these? I think Mark and Luke leave out what Jesus says except for sexual immorality because it was universally agreed by everyone at the time, and there was no debate about that. Everyone at the time agreed. If your spouse cheats on you, you have grounds for divorce. Every, there was no debate about this amongst Jewish people or Roman people at the time. It was universally agreed upon. And so, some things are so obvious you don't have to say them explicitly. I'll give you an example. You know, one day when my children are learning to drive, got 10 years or so before that happens, but one day when my children are learning how to drive, if I say to my son, uh, listen, when you come to a light and it is red, you do not go through the light. You have to wait until it turns green, unless you're turning right. Unless it, you got to wait until it turns green, and then you can go through the intersection. If that's all I say, that's true. But he could say, wait a second, what if there's someone with a medical emergency in my car and there's no one coming and I got to get to the hospital? Well, then you can run the red light because life is at stake, okay? So you see, there's some things that are exceptions that are so obvious. Everyone knows it. You don't have to say the exception every single time. If you're walking by a house or driving by a house and you see a giant sign on their front yard that says, no trespassing for any reason, you should not trespass. But what if there's smoke and fire coming out of the top of the roof? then you better violate that command. You better trespass. Because we all know if life is in danger, you better break… The, 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 the trespassing law no longer counts. You go knock on a door, break a window, and get the people out of the house. Some things are so obvious, you don't have to put them into words every time you mention them. And I believe the exception for sexual morality was so widely accepted that Jesus did not have to put it into words every single time that He mentioned it. Now, th- this one is really strong, this next argument for why you can legally get divorced if there's adultery. I'll put, set it up this way. You may, uh, you may see John Piper has a podcast, Ask Pastor John. And this is probably before it was officially a podcast back in 2008 when they were doing YouTube videos of this where he'd be interviewed with questions. I sent in a question, only one I've ever sent in, and he actually answered my question. And it was about this verse. About, it was about his view of divorce. It's one of those bigger, I'm like, I don't agree. So, I sent in my question. It was my question word for word on the YouTube title. That's, I wrote that. And uh, my question was, how does God's willingness to divorce Israel in Jer- Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, affect your, your view of divorce? Which is a pointed question, but I thought it got the point across. And so, John Piper, it's two minutes long. No one's seen it. It's got like a thousand views. He, he answered the question very briefly, and he said, he said the whole point is, uh, let me read the verse. Jeremiah 3, 8 says this, God's speaking of Israel, the adulterous wife right? For hundreds of years, Israel has committed spiritual adultery against Yahweh, and God says, she, Israel, saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. That's the exile. So, God sent a decree of divorce away with Israel for the 70 years. Then He brought her back to Himself, and He entered back into that marriage covenant with her in the new covenant. That's true. But God still sent her away with the certificate of divorce. And if it's a sin ever to divorce anyone, then why is God sending away His bride with a, with a divorce certificate? The answer is, it's just to give divorce if there has been repeated unrepentant adultery. God does it to Israel, and so Jesus gives that exception clause in Matthew chapter 5 and 19. John MacArthur agrees. He says, quote, in light of God's spiritual divorce and eventual remarriage to Israel, it is not right to claim that Scripture recognizes no grounds at all for divorce and remarriage, as some Christians claim today. Also, to finish this point up, remember the woman at the well? Jesus doesn't say, you are now currently married to five men. He says, you had five husbands. The man you currently are with is not your husband, and you are right in saying you have no husband. 
That means her marriages ended. It's not a permanence view. They ended at some point in the past, even if they were ending unrighteously. Okay, point number four of the message. Divorce and remarriage are permitted but not required for sexual immorality. I can see that I am not going to get to the end of this sermon, but that's okay. We'll see how far we can get. Uh, Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is the text that the Pharisees and Jesus are debating at a few different points. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Look at the first four verses. Again, the point is divorce and remarriage are permitted but not required for sexual immorality. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife... And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then, here's the command, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, do you see here, Moses does not actually command divorce in this text. He simply grants that certain divorces are happening, and he's trying to figure out how we navigate sticky particular situations. Well, look again at verse 1. Here's the all-debated part. When a man takes takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. The debated phrase is some indecency. Erwat debar. The, literally, the, the phrase literally means in the original language, the nakedness of a thing or a matter of nakedness. That's what the word means, erwat debar. Something indecent, the nakedness of a thing. It is used, that exact phrase is only used one other time, I, I believe in the whole Old Testament, in the previous chapter where it refers, this is a little bit earthy language here, it refers to human excrement when it is taken outside the camp of, the, of, the, of Israel and they are to bury it with a shovel outside the camp so that there is nothing indecent, no erwat bar in the camp, nothing, nothing scandalous when God is present. It's, it's for ceremonial cleanness. So you can tell whatever erwat bar is referring to, it's pretty bad, referring to human excrement in that particular text and the word nakedness of a thing. Nakedness, that particular word, or what, is used throughout Leviticus to describe sexual sin, sexual morality. If you, if you ever read Leviticus 18 or 20, you will see, do not uncover the nakedness of, that means do not have illicit sexual relations with. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father, your father-in-law, your mother, your mother-in-law, do not, the, the son, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You read Leviticus 18, and that word, or what, is used over and over and over describing some kind of scandalous sexual immorality. And I believe that Jesus is trying to shed light on what that phrase meant. And Jesus says, sexual morality is the primary emphasis of what this phrase is referring to. The kind of divorce that is allowed is for a nakedness issue, a, an issue of scandalousness or, an, or, or a sexually immoral act. And just to kind of give you, this is kind of disgusting to think about, the, the, the Jewish people at the time, and everyone I read said the same thing on this. I mean, everybody talked about this. 
there was a major debate amongst rabbis at the time, and there were two schools of thought about how to interpret Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, something indecent that you give a certificate of divorce for. There was one group called the School of Hillel. The School of Hillel taught not so much no-fault divorce, but what I was calling any-fault divorce. They literally, I read a whole list of what they would allow you to divorce your wife for. It includes burning dinner. It includes finding a more attractive woman. If you find a woman fairer than she, you may divorce her. She is indecent in your eyes. She's Erwat Dabar. She's something indecent. If she has badly cooked a meal, you may find, I mean, it's just unbelievable stuff. Is Jesus in agreement with the school of Hillel? Absolutely not. The other school of thought was the school of Shammai. The school of Shammai is closer but not identical to the Lord Jesus. They believed that the only kind of, 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 of uh, scandal that you could divorce your spouse for was for, they defined Urwat Debar as unchastity or sexual immorality. Does that sound similar to how Jesus defines it? So Jesus comes much closer to the school of Shammai than the school of Hillel. But the majority of Jews, including many of the Pharisees, held to the liberal view that anything your spouse does wrong justifies divorce. And you know the famous historian Josephus from the time of Jesus? He's just after Christ. He was a Pharisee. He said, you can divorce your spouse, quote, for any reason whatsoever. That was his view even as a Pharisee. And so Jesus takes a radically conservative position saying that only sexual morality is grounds for divorce. Now, I want to next week talk more in detail about what exactly is accompanied by that term, sexual immorality. Again, everyone that I saw basically agrees on this. The word, the original word for sexual immorality is the word porneia in Greek. And Jesus uses this word, it's all over the New Testament. The word porneia, it means, and this is again, agreed upon by virtually all people on this point. Porneia, it does not just refer to adultery although it includes adultery. Porneia is an umbrella term for sexual immorality, like a junk drawer term, and it just encompasses all forms of sexual morality outside of a man and a woman in marriage. So, uh, the the list includes uh, homosexuality, lesbianism, prostitution, bestiality, incest, and everything else you can think of that's not a man and a wife in marriage. That is what porneia is referring to in the biblical worldview, and that's what Jesus says can become grounds for, uh, for divorce. Now, is divorce required if there has been porneia in a marriage, if there's been sexual immorality, it is not required. The, the first instinct is actually to move towards reconciliation and forgiveness, even if it is a horrifically difficult situation. We, we think that the first instinct should be reconciliation no matter how badly the, the, the marriage has been damaged by sexual immorality or sexual sin. There are stories of incredible moments of redemption and reconciliation in very sinfully damaged marriages, where God has restored what seemed impossible and has brought flourishing to a marriage that once looked like it was on the very end of its life because of immorality. We will talk more about that again next week. Point number five, divorce and remarriage are permitted when a believing spouse is deserted by an unbelieving spouse. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Divorce and remarriage are permitted when a believing spouse is deserted by an unbelieving spouse. The 
there's more in this chapter than we can talk about right now. Let me just say one word that throws everyone off when you first hear these verses. For a second, Paul will say, this that I'm about to tell you is from the Lord, not from me, which seems to make sense, right? But then a second later, he says, what I'm about to tell you now is from me, not the Lord. And people go, wait, is he like leaving divine inspiration to give us his personal opinion, and then he's going to go back to divine inspiration? What? No, 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 no. Listen, when Paul uses the word Lord in the New Testament, he normally means the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, right? Every knee will bow and say of Jesus, Lord. He normally uses the word Lord for Jesus. In this text, he's talking about Jesus. What does he mean by saying, the Lord said this, not I, and then second later, I say this, not the Lord? He's saying, during Jesus' earthly ministry, He addressed this particular marriage issue, marriage between believers. But Jesus was never asked about, nor did He address marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. So what I'm going to tell you now was not something the earthly Jesus addressed. It's something I'm telling you. And then later in the chapter, He says, and I think that I too have the Holy Spirit as I'm writing. And then in chapter 14, he says, what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. So clearly, he believes his words are divinely inspired, but they are not, in this instance, something Jesus addressed in his earthly life. I told you this was a dense sermon, is it not? My goodness. First time I tried to study this stuff, I, could, I was just like overwhelmed by how much is out there. So let's, let's, uh, let's, look, let's walk through some of these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's start in verse 12. We'll talk about 10 and 11 later. Verse 12, to the rest, he refers to a believer married to an unbeliever. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother, that's a believer, has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, stop here. I thought Paul said that we should only marry someone who's a believer. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Marry someone, whoever you wish, in the Lord. Why is he talking about a believer married to an unbeliever? The answer is, these couples are recently converted in the city of Corinth. They've been Christians for less than 10 years. Some of them were already married when they heard the gospel. And the husband gets converted and the wife doesn't. Or the wife gets converted and the husband doesn't. Now what? And a lot of the Christian spouses were saying, I'm probably unclean if I'm living with and sleeping with an unbeliever. That probably, that's probably bad. So shouldn't I separate? Shouldn't I divorce from my un- unbelieving husband or wife? Paul says, no, if they consent to live with you, you should not divorce them. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. doesn't mean they're saved. It means they're in the realm of God's work in the world. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, this, is, this verse is crucial, but if the unbelieving partner separates, he or she leaves you, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. Now, do you see here, Paul is adding an instance where divorce is allowed that Jesus did not address during His earthly ministry. And what does Paul say? The only… So, in the the New Testament, in the New Covenant era that we live in, the New Testament gives explicitly two grounds 
for divorce. There are two, for Christians, there are two explicit grounds for divorce in the Bible. Number one, for sexual immorality. We could talk more about what that looks like, but adultery is the primary way that's going to look like, right? Actual adultery can become grounds for divorce. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. Number two, and that, by the way, that also allows remarriage. Number two, if you are married to an unbeliever and they leave you, they desert you, they abandon you, you are allowed to let them go, and it says you are not enslaved. Now, I'm going to disagree again with Piper here. I don't think the word ins- you are not enslaved means you're not enslaved, you can let them go, but now you're going to be eternally single. I think that the not enslaved is referring to you're no longer connected to that marriage. You're entirely set free. You're no longer bound or enslaved by that marriage, and so now you are free again to remarry to a believer. And now, here's, there's several reasons why. One is the word says you're not enslaved, but here's another thing. Think about this. If you're married, if you find yourself married to a non-Christian, and they abandon you, and they divorce you, and they leave you, you let them go. If they want five years later, you're, you're living as a single person, five years later they come back and they want to remarry you, you shouldn't do it because they're not a believer and you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. You see, once that's over, it's over. Once the unbeliever has left, you shouldn't reconcile. You, 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 once they're out, you should not be remarrying an unbeliever. You let them go. The, the ties are cut. You're no longer enslaved. And I believe that means, this is controversial, that you are free then to remarry uh, a believer at that point. One of the reasons I say that is because if you look in context here, look down at verse 39. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. See if you see a very similar idea. Verse 39. A, I already read this, but for a different reason. A wife is bound. Remember the word, you're no, no longer enslaved. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free. What does free mean? If you're not bound, what does it mean to be free? You're free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Do you see where I'm getting this from? You're either bound to a spouse and therefore to marry someone else's adultery, or you are free from that spouse, in which case you are free to remarry a Christian. And if that includes death here, where you're free to remarry, so if a non-believer divorces you, leaves you, you are free. You're not enslaved. You're free from that marriage, and you are free to remarry a believer. I would put those two texts together and say that they help interpret one another. Now, In the history of the church, including this wonderful document from the PCA, in the history of the church, from the Reformation period on, because the Catholic Church had a different view that I think is not helpful, but from the Reformation period on, we're talking Reformers, 1500s, Puritans, 1670s on to today, uh, there has been a long line of very godly Bible-believing saints, I still think it's the majority, who would say, what about physical, life-threatening domestic violence? What about a husband who is beating his wife, beating his children, it's, it's almost always the husband, beating, beating, threatening the family members, and the Puritans had attempted poisoning was an example they gave in a marriage. If there is serious damage to your health on the line kind of violence going on, then we would all agree the wife is not called to stay in the home and submit to her husband as he is beating her, okay? Obviously, no. We believe in the basic protection of life and safety. The wife should get her children, and she should get out of the home if she is under basic threat to her safety and her her life because of a violent, drunk, abusive husband, something like that. If that husband is a member of the church, then that man should immediately undergo church discipline. 
And if he is not in any way repentant of his abusiveness and his beatings and his threatenings and his attempted murder and whatever he's guilty of, you should also call the authorities if it's serious enough. But if he is unrepentant, eventually he would be excommunicated, which means he's no longer considered a believer. And here's what believers have said for a long time, including the Puritans, the most conservative people you can find on this stuff. They say the same basic thing. A husband who beats his wife and threatens her is forcing her to desert him, which is a form of desertion. If it is no longer safe for the woman to be in the home because he is violently threatening and trying to hurt or kill he and the children, then the wife is forced to abandon him, which means he is guilty of abandonment. He's forced her out. She has no choice at that point. And if he's undergone church discipline and he's no longer considered a believer, you have the abandonment of an unbeliever at that particular stage. So we would say extreme situations of domestic violence and abuse could be qualified as a form of desertion and could also qualify for divorce and for remarriage. Point number six, biblically unlawful divorce followed by remarriage. Listen to that carefully. Biblically unlawful divorce followed by remarriage is adultery. If there is one statement that is not believed in churches all over the place, it's what I just said. I can't tell you how many pastors on it. I had a pastor who performs a wedding, the divorce that… So, this couple gets married. They get divorced for no biblical reason. The husband now wants to remarry this new girl. That would be considered adultery by Jesus. And I know the, the pastor who just did the wedding didn't think anything of it. I thought… I told him. I said, but they were unbiblically divorced, and you did the, the remarriage, which was a remarriage into adultery. Why did you do that? He said, I don't, I don't know. It just seemed like the thing to do. So, Jesus said, I'm not making this up, biblically unlawful divorce followed by remarriage is adultery. Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife without biblical grounds and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced of her husband without biblical grounds commits adultery. Another scenario comes up here. Let's say a couple is married, and they get divorced without biblical grounds. Can either of them ever get remarried biblically? And the answer is possibly. If, if partner A divorces partner B unbiblically, and A starts sleeping with someone else or gets remarried, now you have divorce and adultery together. And so now the other spouse would be free at that point to remarry. You see how that works? So the divorce was unbiblical. But if the other spouse remarries, which often happens, then now you have sexual morality coupled with adultery, and the other spouse would be free to remarry. John Murray, Don Carson, many people have argued that as well. Point number seven, biblically permissible divorce allows for remarriage. Biblically permissible divorce allows for remarriage, and we've already covered that in previous points. Point number eight, Improperly divorced and remarried Christians, this is word for word from Kevin DeYoung, this, this point here. Improperly divorced and remarried Christians. What, what are the people who, I've already failed. I got unbiblically divorced. I got unbiblically remarried. Jesus calls it adultery. Now what do I do? Do I divorce my current spouse and go try to remarry my previous spouse? Or is it, if, if I continue living with my new marriage, is it adultery every time we're together physically? Like what, if I'm just living in continual adultery, what am I supposed to do? What if I've already failed? Improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins 
and make whatever amends are necessary. Now, let me just say as clearly as I can, Jesus is not teaching that you are in continual adultery every time you are intimate with your new spouse in these scenarios. What Jesus is teaching is that the initial act of sexual intimacy in the remarriage… Okay, this is… We're going to get lost here. A couple gets divorced without biblical grounds. This partner remarries to another person without biblical grounds. The first time that new couple is intimate, they are committing adultery on the previous spouse. Both partners are committing adultery on the previous spouse, but they are not con committing continual adultery. Uh, that's not what Jesus is teaching. Nowhere do they say, therefore, divorce that spouse and try to re reconcile with the previous spouse. You simply go, Lord, I am so sorry that I did this. If I would have known better, if I would have been thinking more clearly at the time, I would not have done this. God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. It was wrong. But God forgives, and then you make the best of what you have now. And the Lord, it can be greatly glorified through the brokenness and sinfulness of that scenario. God can bring great good out of the effect at the end. If there is repentance and there is a humility, God is not saying you need to split up with this new spouse, but you should be faithful to that spouse and continue to love them as Christ would have you to. Turn with me to Hosea in the Minor Prophets chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. You may say, well, where's the hope in this exactly? Well, before I read this passage in Hosea 11, let me remind you of the story of Hosea. This is how I'll close today. You know the story probably. God tells Hosea to marry a woman. This woman either was or was about to become, it looks like about to become maybe a way to interpret this, a, a prostitute. Hosea marries Gomer, and he loves her. He lavishes his love on this woman, and yet she, before long, gives herself to prostitution, and she is bought by other men, and she is unbelievably unfaithful to Hosea the prophet. And God knew this was all along going to be what happened to Hosea. Why in the world would God tell Hosea to marry a woman who would eventually do what, what Gomer, this woman, does? And as you read those opening chapters of Hosea, God makes it very clear. Hosea, just like other prophets, live out almost a parable of what I'm doing in the world. Hosea, you are going to represent the covenant faithfulness of me, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And your wife, Gomer, is going to represent the adulterous wife that I'm married to, namely Israel. And what, what people are going to see is, as you continue to, later in the story, she's with another man. Hosea goes and buys her back to himself. And now he says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be faithful to you. And God tells him to do that. Why? Well, listen, if, if we're being honest here, is anyone in this room not guilty of spiritual adultery to our Lord? Spiritual adultery is a metaphor for idolatry. Find, finding our satisfaction not in our spouse, but in other things. That's adultery and idolatry. How many of us are guilty before God of worshiping the creation over the Creator as Christians? How many times have our hearts turned away from God and looked for the broken sisters to give us what only the fountain of life can truly give us? And yet God looks at us and says, I am going to continue to forgive as you repent. I'm going to continue to lavish my love on you. And Hosea is a little picture of the kind of unbelievable, undeserved love that God has for His people. Look at Hosea 11 verses 7 through 9. At the end, after God has spoken so much of the unfaithfulness of His people, Hosea 11, verse 7, 
God says these wonderful words, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's a word for Israel. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You know, if I was writing this out of my own imagination, that's not how I would have written that part. I would have said, I am God, not a man. I'm the Holy One in your midst. You have committed adultery on me for centuries, Israel. Therefore, I'm going to come to you in wrath. That's how I would have written it. But God says, because I am holy, and because I am your husband, and because you've been unfaithful, I'm going to come to you not in wrath, but in mercy and tenderness and kindness and compassion. I'm going to lead you back out, Israel, into the wilderness, and I'm going to wedge you to myself. I'm going to become your husband again, and you will know the Lord as I shower my grace upon you. So let us think about how we can demonstrate this kind of love to one another and especially to our spouses. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, there is so much material we just covered, and we did not do justice to almost any of those points. God, I pray that You would help us, not, not that we would ever feel a guilt trip for claiming our rights. If there is adultery, it is not a sin to initiate a divorce and to remarry another person who's a believer. It's not a sin. We don't want to guilt anyone with false guilt who does that. But God, I pray that we would demonstrate something of the instinct that you have, which is that you don't give up your unfaithful spouse. You woo her into the wilderness and you win her back to yourself. You don't treat her like Zeboim, which I believe was one of the cities destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, you treat her with great lavishness of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and you restore and strengthen that marriage that had been so damaged by the sin of your people. And God, if you treated us like we deserve, we would have been divorced from you long ago and cast into outer darkness. But God, we are so thankful for your relentless forgiveness of us, your very imperfect bride. And God, we thank you that one day you will bring us faultless to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will come on the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will come forward to meet our groom. And somehow or another, we will be dressed in white on that day with the righteous deeds of the saints, as Revelation teaches, all because of your lavish, never giving up mercy that has rescued us from ourselves, forgiven us of many unfaithfulnesses. And God, I pray we could demonstrate something of that to those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.